If you had to you try to think of one phrase for describing what it means to live the Christian life, what phrase might you use? Maybe a single sentence might you use to describe that? And just kind of think about it for a minute. If you were explaining Christianity to someone else, And that as you've been a Christian, this is the essence, this is the heart of what it means to live the Christian life, to be a Christian. Go with me to Philippians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul gives his description. And it's after he's been a Christian for years. It's after he's been an apostle, an evangelist, and a preacher of Christianity for years. But tucked in to this passage that we're going to read and think about some together this morning with the main idea related to it, in verse 10, he says basically what Christianity is all about for him. When he says at the beginning of the verse, I want to know Christ. Now at first, when I would read that, probably one of the first times I read it, I would think, well, Paul, you already know Christ. You've known Christ for years now. But still, it's meaningful and it's accurate for him to say that for him living the Christian life, being a Christian, why do you come to church? Why do you do religious things? What are you aiming for? What's really going on? What are your goals? What values are you fulfilling for being a Christian? And Paul says, after years of Christian living and Christian ministry, I want to know Christ. And so this morning, and I'm not much one for slides usually, But I thought this is going to be a long enough definition and description that I put it up there for you to kind of think of as we go through this passage. And to summarize what Paul says there in that one sentence, to put it kind of in different terms, just as it is there on the screen. Is this the truth about your Christianity, your doing church, your serving and why you serve and Whatever you might say, this is at the heart of it. My sincere desire is to get to know Jesus Christ more and more deeply as he truly is. That is, as it's revealed in the word. In a way that genuinely saves and sanctifies me, that transforms me for his glory and for my true good and happiness. And just the more I thought about it, the more I studied, and the more I reflected on my own poor experience of it all, I thought that this aspiration is a very, very good and solid one to keep us on track, to keep us centered and focused in Christian living, but also in the ministry and the mission of the church. Because the corollary of this is we want to make Christ known. The main thing that we want to do as people engage with us and come into contact with us at South is so that they will come to know Christ savingly, transformingly. That's got to be always at the heart of what we're aiming for. 
In Philippians 1.21, Paul had already said, for me to live is Christ. How does that make sense? What does that mean? In Philippians 3, Paul's faith story makes it clear that he was religious for a long time before this became the heart of his religion. And ironically, he wasn't right with God in the midst of it. In fact, he was opposed to God in the midst of his religiousness and his spirituality. But then he comes into contact with Jesus Christ on that Damascus road and changes everything for him, including his religion and his spirituality. Back in the middle of verse four, we'll start. He's reflecting on what he used to be religiously and spiritually and what he is now as a Christian. That very word, we're Christ's ones. We belong to him, we're defined by him. He says, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, that is in their own accomplishments, humanly speaking, I have more. And listen to his religious spiritual pedigree or uh, resume. Circumcised on the eighth day, check. Of the people of Israel, check. Of the tribe of Benjamin and a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee, that was the strictest kind of Jewish person. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless, blameless. But, verse 7, whatever were gains to me, whatever I used to consider religious, spiritual assets, I now put in the loss column. I now consider loss. Why? Because of Christ. What was bad about the seeming accomplishments and supposed virtues that Paul had just described? <laughs> what was bad about them is that they had kept him from rightly recognizing and responding to God in Christ. He was zealous, but not according to knowledge, not according to the truth. He thought he was being godly, but he was opposed to the followers of God the Son. You see how, what a myth it is when people say in the category of religion and spirituality, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe just as so you're sincere. <laughs> Paul is the proof false. It matters deeply if you're wrong. Paul was deeply wrong spiritually, so he was opposed to God and God's people and to God's work. But it all got transformed and turned upside down because of Christ. That is, once he recognized and realized and learned who Christ was, who Jesus was, that was the Lynchpin, that was the central piece of the puzzle that puts everything else together in terms of belief and theology and spiritual worship and religious practice. Think about Paul's story and of how he used to regard Christ. Paul was Christ's contemporary. They overlapped. And it's almost impossible for me to believe 
that Paul, at some point, then known as Saul, wouldn't have come into contact personally, heard Jesus, seen Jesus, one way or another. In 2 Corinthians 5, he talks about, we used to think of Christ according to the flesh, that is, humanly speaking, but now we don't think of him that way any longer. And so, Paul knew about Jesus. He knew he was a miracle worker. He knew he was a teacher. He knew the claims that were made by him and about him that he was a Messiah, but he ended up hanging on a tree. And Deuteronomy says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So Paul, as one of the other Pharisees, thought that Jesus was bogus, counterfeit Messiah. That means he was blasphemous. That was, means he was sacrilegious. And that means that he deserved to die. And his people, his sect, deserved to be persecuted the way Paul did. And he throws, he's a religious leader, but he is arranging for their arrest, for their capture, and for their execution. And then he encounters Jesus Christ. And he comes to know, beginning from that Damascus road, it's the key that leads him to reinterpret every Bible passage he's thought about Messiah before. He rethinks everything, the way of salvation, the way of being right with God, until he gets to the place from thinking that he was this terrible imposter who deserved to die until he thinks of Jesus in the terms that was read in the scripture reading this morning. And now this is how Paul thinks of Jesus of Nazareth. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created. And he goes on and on. And in him, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. For a monotheistic Jew to get to the place where he thinks Jesus from Nazareth is divine, is deity, is extraordinary. Everything has come to be revolutionized in Paul's thinking and therefore his living because of Christ. It reminds me of the great thoughts from C.S. Lewis from his book, Mere Christianity. When he says with this kind of hard-headed realism that years ago when I first read it, I thought, wow, I like it when someone writes so intelligently and bluntly about religious things and spiritual things. Because I had grown up with sort of, oh, it doesn't really matter what you think and it doesn't really matter what you believe. And I thought, why would that be true about God? It matters what you think. It matters what you think about aerodynamics. It matters what you think about agriculture. You better get those right or things aren't going to go well. Why would it be the case? Oh, it doesn't really matter what you think about the infinite divine, you know, Lord of everything. Lewis says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. That is... I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That, says Lewis, is the one thing we mustn't say. Because a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. 
He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or he, else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He didn't intend to. Now it seems to me, Lewis said, obvious that he was neither lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently how strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. I want to know Christ, Paul says. Now again, Lord, liar, or lunatic. Well, some say a, third, a fourth category should be added, legend. Because maybe the stuff that the New Testament says about Jesus, he didn't really say. But let me tell you, let me assure you, it's only the most radical fringe of the fringe scholarship that denies that Jesus lives or denies that the New Testament Gospels essentially got it right when it came to the sayings of Jesus. So he really did say these things. And he's going around saying um, that your eternal destiny depends on how you respond to me. He's going around saying things like, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Look to the person beside you in the pew. If they start talking that way, what are you going to conclude? Well, Jesus started and continued to talk that way, so Lewis says, come on. You can't say, well, he was a great moral teacher, and that's it. Sincerely. He's either insane so you could sympathize or he's a charlatan or he is what he really says he is. And I'm telling you partly my own testimony and story thinking about these things. That reasoning that I encountered in Lewis and then it came together when I really looked at the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And again, there was, when I was in junior high, thinking these things for the first time, there was a book called The Passover Plot. I don't know if you remember it. And there's all these, these alternative explanations to what happened to Jesus after the crucifixion. And they're always taken with earnest seriousness, and if CNN had existed at the time, I'm sure they would have had a Christmas time special about it. And I'm like, thanks a lot. Because it was like, well, it almost reminded me of Monty Python. He's not quite dead. In other words, he gets flogged the way that happened in the movie Passion of the Christ and you see what happened to him. And it was horrible. And it was, he was nearly dead from that. And then he goes and he's on the cross, crucified. And you've heard the descriptions of what's involved there. The suffocation because you can't even suspend your weight. And three hours of that. And then they pierce his side. And, it, you know, the obvious wound from that. But the theory is that then they took him down and they laid him in the tomb. And the tomb was kind of cool. It's sort of like, hmm. And he's just like, whew, it feels better. 
and he gets up. Oh, I don't know what he does after he gets up. He revives, whew, nothing like a cool tomb to revive you after a flogging and a crucifixion. That's the alternative. That's one of the main alternatives to what happened to Jesus. And I tell you what, sometimes in my life, it's like Satan overplays his hand. And I thought, even then, if that's the best you've got, then I think Jesus probably really did rise from the dead. So you've got someone who resurrected, not just revived like Lazarus. He was really dead, but he rose and he died again. This is a different kind of rising. So Lewis's arguments, the words and works of Jesus themselves recorded in the New Testament, and then the reality of the resurrection. It just all came together in my own heart and mind and thought and thinking. He really is who the Bible says he is. He really is the divine son of God. One of the accounts that Paul gives of his conversion on the Damascus Road is in Acts 22. When Paul asked the one who had so dramatically appeared to him, knocked him off his horse, who are you, Lord? Jesus gives to me the answer, and one piece of it is just extraordinary. He says, I am Jesus from Nazareth whom you are persecuting. That from Nazareth detail. Now, every time I make reference to this, I have to be careful of which town I choose. I've chosen Eaton Rapids before, or Potterville, or Langsburg. If you knew Wilmington, Ohio, <laughs> this is the divine, resurrected, exalted Son of God. But the reality, the historicity, it's not some mystical Christ of faith. It's I'm Jesus, the one who lived 30 years in obscurity in Langsburg. But now I've been resurrected and I've ascended to the Father's right hand and now I'm coming and now I'm reigning from the Father's right hand and one day I'll come to judge the living and the dead. That's who you're persecuting, Saul. I've been to Nazareth. I think about this every time, every now and then, the privilege of the trip to Israel. I've been to his hometown. I've walked where Jesus walked. The, the historicity of that, the solidity of that. He is real. He is as real as you are as a person. Everything that I'm saying, everything the Bible says about him, this isn't cunningly devised fable. This is history, the real history of a real person. And so you put it together the way John does in his gospel. God has walked among us. God lived in Potterville for a long time and nobody knew that's who it was. The word became flesh. The Son of God became a human being and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, his words, his works, his miracles. 
He calmed storms. He cast out demons. He raised dead people. He gave blind people, blind from birth, 2020 vision. He lived among us. He walked among us, full of grace and truth. And then Luke records in Acts 1 that the resurrected Jesus, the guy from Nazareth, it says, <clears throat> and Luke must have been there as eyewitness too, was taken up before our eyes. And a cloud, so Jesus is now ascending to heaven. And again, there's this detail. I can see him, see him, see him. Oh, now there's a cloud. He's behind, I can't see him now. But the point of the reality of that, they understandably were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking at the sky? Jesus had just given them marching orders a little while ago. Then he says, this same Jesus. And I emphasize that because again, theologians who are way too smart for themselves will talk about the Christ of history and then there's the Christ of faith. Luke says they're the same. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. He'll come back visibly. He'll come back bodily. He'll come back on a particular day of the week at a particular time. Some of the old gospel songs echoing some phrases in the book of the Hebrew, uh, book of Revelation talk about that day when Jesus will split the eastern sky. And I love to imagine Who's going to be the first to spot him? Who's going to be the first to see? What is that? Who? And then there's the realization what it is. That's, I want to know Christ. I want to get to know more and more this person. Because the truth about him sort of tells the truth about everything else that really and truly matters. This same Jesus, the Bible says, is now at the Father's right hand, praying for us, interceding for us, and reigning mysteriously in God's providence over all things until that time when, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has deposed and destroyed all rival dominion, authority, and power. Keep that in mind in light of what's happened in elections this week. Jesus really is truly, truly reigning. And this same Jesus, there's coming that day, so keep things in perspective. And I love every time I get to remind you of this. There's coming that day when, in relationship to this Jesus I'm describing, every knee will bend and every tongue will confess, declare, and mean it. Jesus Christ is Lord. This same Jesus, 
is coming back to judge the living and the dead and then begin to reign and rule, culminating in the eternal glories of the new heaven and the new earth. This same Jesus, because of Christ, we know the truth about all the things that really matter most. And, you know, whenever I do a message like this, it could easily <laughs> sprawl out into five messages, and I'm afraid that's uh, true as well. So I've got to keep going fast. But I want you to be fascinated with Christ and enamored with Christ and preoccupied with Christ. And I want you to realize you couldn't keep thinking, reflecting, meditating long enough to be like, okay, what next? Let me just give you some examples. I love it. Charles Spurgeon said, our doctrine is a person. And that's really true. For example, because of Christ, we know the central truth about every other religion. You know, it's sometimes said that all other religions basically worship the same God, lead the same place, different roads, etc. Paul says in Colossians 2, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather on Christ, rather than on Christ. And then this, for in Christ... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. If a religion, you can't just be honorifically and polite to Jesus unless you affirm all the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus of Nazareth. It's not the same religion. Jesus said in John 5, 23, the father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever doesn't have, whoever doesn't honor the son in that way doesn't honor the father who sent him. That's pretty clarifying, isn't it? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because of Christ, we know those truths. Because of Christ, we know also or ought to know the central mission and message of the church. Same as, it's the same as the apostles, Paul, Apostle Paul's. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, 5, for what we preach, what we proclaim, what we present to people is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. Oh, every church, every ministry has to be sure again and again That when people encounter them, it's not, oh, wow, this about that church or this about that ministry. But what they encounter, what we proclaim isn't ourselves, but Christ. We're just so zealous for that. We're just so glad to speak of him. He's such a wondrous, glorious savior. He's Lord, he's good shepherd, he's high priest. He's the sympathizing Savior who's been through his own Gethsemane 
worse than any suffering we've experienced. There are just a million reasons to extol him, to explain him, to present him to people. So when we have time with people, let's make sure they find out about Jesus Christ, not us. Amen? For what we preach is not ourselves, but Christ is Lord. For evangelizing the lost, Paul says, when I came to you, Corinthians, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom. I didn't figure out from marketing what you wanted to hear. He knew what they wanted to hear. Chapter one tells us. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And if you hear that phrase and you think, wow, that kind of restricts what I can say, then you don't understand the phrase. Jesus Christ, Messiah, Savior King who was to come, but he got crucified. And the whole doctrine of atonement is built into that word as well. Paul says, I knew what you Corinthians want. The Jews wanted miracles. The Greeks, the Gentiles wanted wisdom, philosophy, rhetoric. But I don't want your faith to come from things that we can manufacture in a human way, says Paul. So I came with the only solid basis for faith that really saves. I told you about Jesus Christ as the one who was crucified. It's our message for edifying the saved, not just evangelizing the lost. Colossians 128. He is the one we proclaim, Paul says, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. How do you teach how to live the Christian life? Teach a person who Christ is, what they have from him, and who they are in him. We proclaim, explain Christ. That's the touchstone for whether or not we're getting right and whether or not we're staying true. There are all kinds of philosophies out there. There are all kinds of ways of living successfully out there. Those are not the business of the church of Jesus Christ. We proclaim him. And we do it gladly because there's only one savior. What was wrong with Paul's approach? He was still lost. He wasn't right with God. He came to know that only through Jesus Christ, not having a righteousness of my own by my works, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in no one else. Acts 4.12. For there is no other name, and the name stands for all that he is. There's no one else under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Jonathan Edwards says this, there's only one savior. If God offers you a savior from deserved punishment and you will not receive him, then surely it is just that you should go without a savior. Or is God obliged because you do not like this savior to provide you another? He has given 
an infinitely honorable and glorious person, even his only begotten son, to be a sacrifice for sin, and so provided salvation. And this Savior is offered to you. Now, if you refuse to accept him, is God unjust if he doesn't save you? There can be no other Savior. No one else has the qualification. No one has the attributes. There's only one mediator between God and men. Our Savior, our Good Shepherd, He who sympathizes and empathizes us with our weaknesses so that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. No wonder Paul, even after being a Christian for years, still writes these passionate words of of aspiration. I want to know Christ. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, Paul says, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, that's a great motto for the Christian and for a church. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What's the glorious destiny for those who truly come to know Christ, to get to know him? It's to be with him, 1 Thessalonians 4, and to be like him, conformed to the image of God's son. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. And God who begins this good work will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. As the apostle John writes, we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. There's so much more to say about our glorious Lord. Let this be the climax for now. Jesus, the man from Nazareth, now in resurrection glory, is the certainty producing preview of the coming kingdom of glory for all those who have put their trust in him. So I agree with Paul, and the older I get, I hope this matters more and more and more centrally to me. Everything else I do in life, in ministry, my sincere desire is to get to know Jesus Christ more and more deeply as he truly is, revealed in his word in a way that truly saves and sanctifies and transforms and comforts and guides me in the way that no one else can for his glory and for my true good and happiness. May we aspire to know Christ and to make him known. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there's so much more I'd be eager to say even this morning. But at the very least, 
I hope the main idea is clear. Christ utterly deserves to have first place in everything. In every life, in every relationship, in every ministry, may Jesus Christ be honored and praised. May we see the simplicity and the strength of aspiring to this one great life-encompassing goal. I want to know Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.